Well, I would uh, really, really love it if you could take your Bible with me and turn back to the book of Lamentations. And uh, we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Lamentations. We find ourselves in chapter 3 today. If you're just joining us, welcome. My name is Keith, and we're going through Lamentations. Glad to have you. And uh, this is a book that, that maybe you're not as familiar with. Hopefully, if you've been here, it, it's becoming more familiar. Uh, th- this is a book, as the name implies, that is all about the expression of grief. That's what Lamentations is. L- lamentation or lamenting is an expression of grief. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a hot button word today and books and blogs being written on, on lamenting. And, and that's in part why I wanted to address this book, because I think uh, on the one hand, um, uh, in our culture, we, we can be somewhat stoic and, and um, not understand the role that uh, God would have us to play in terms of emotions like grief. And on the other hand, the other extreme is, is the cultural fad of expressive individualism where, you know, not just wearing your emotions on your sleeve is commonplace, but, but that the, the expression and celebration of any feeling you happen to have as the hallmark of your authenticity seems to be the new mode of the day. And so I want to try to address both of those realities by looking at a biblical view of grief and lament. But that's what the word means. Uh, the occasion, of course, of the book is Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah was a prophet who uh, ministered to the southern kingdom uh, called Judah, the, where the Israelites uh, resided. And um, this is going on in the uh, months and years leading up to the Babylonian captivity that happens in the 6th century. Uh, Jeremiah's message was a message of repentance and calling the people back to God. And, uh, and yet also one of warning that if they did not repent, that there would be discipline through the, through the hand of the Babylonians who would come in, destroy the city, destroy the temple, and uh, kill many people, and, kill, and, and still more carry others back to Babylon. And if you read the book of Daniel, that's what Daniel's all about, is some of those uh, junior high Jewish boys that got taken off to Babylon and some of the things that God used them to do. So that's what's going on. Jeremiah has been faithful for over four decades. Uh, the people did not repent. And so Jeremiah is now writing subsequent to that Babylonian captivity and the destruction of Jerusalem. So what is he lamenting? What, what is he grieving over? He's grieving over the destruction of his city. But, but remember, that, that it's not just like, oh, I love that building and the building's gone now. I mean, that's part of it. But it's, it's what the temple represented. It's what the, the, the nation of Jerusalem represented. This is not Jeremiah just lamenting over architecture. This is Jeremiah lamenting over his people that have turned away from God and have refused to repent, and now they are paying the consequences of that. And uh, we've seen in the first couple of chapters, Jeremiah describing the the horror and the sorrow and the grief of that. And then in chapter 3, we've been looking at this for the last several weeks, uh, the the tone turns more personal. And we see Jeremiah wrestling with the realities of his own grief and his own sorrow and his own struggle to to think rightly about what's happened. And we've been talking really about spiritual depression and how God rescues us in depression. And uh, we've gotten to a section now in chapter 3 that that is sort of the the top of the mountain. Jeremiah has been climbing, so to speak, in the book. He's leading us to this this high point in the book where he, uh, well, really, uh, God is asking these three questions through the prophet Jeremiah. But these three questions that happen in the verses we're going to look at today 
are the issue as we think about lament and grief because they they point us back to the Lord and what he's doing in the midst of those things. So um, we, we want to, uh, let's see. Let's, let's get to our three questions to ask, okay? So let me just read the section for you, and then we'll come back and, uh, and, and look at uh, in more detail here. So we'll pick it up in verse... Oh, where should we pick it up? Let's just pick it up in the questions, okay? Verse, starting in verse 37. Here's the three questions. Um, who is there who speaks, and it comes to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. We lift up our heart and our hands toward God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not pardoned. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and have not spared. You have covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us mere offscoring and refuse in the midst of the people. And he goes on to describe uh, more of the destruction of what happened there. But but he, as he's getting to the, the, the central part of this most important chapter, he asks three questions. And remember we talked about last time, these are rhetorical questions. These are the questions you ask your children. You don't really want to know the answer. You know the answer. You're not going to leave your shoes there, are you? That's a question, but it's not really a question, right? So that's what's going on here. Three questions, and we looked at two of these last time. And so let me just review those for you, and then we'll come back to pick up where we left off. The first question is, does anything happen apart from the Lord's command? Does anything happen apart from the Lord's command? Verse 37, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Remember, the Babylonians have threatened captivity for uh, actually a couple of decades, and uh, and they're like, we're coming, we're going to get you. And guess what? They did. It, It came to pass just as... Uh, th- those that were involved were threatening that. And, you know, it, it's easy, guys, when, um, when things happen, when, uh, and people make predictions all the time, but, but, um, the, the, the thing God wants us to see here is that, uh, that didn't happen by accident. The Babylonians were allowed to destroy Jerusalem, kill people, and carry others back to Babylon because of God's command. That this was his permissive providence allowing this to happen. Um, remember we talked, this is not in your notes, it's just review. I've got the header in your notes, I think, there. Uh, remember, sovereignty is God's kingly rule and lordship over everything. Providence is the outworking of that sovereignty in all things. So, Everything that happens, uh, good, bad, indifferent, significant, insignificant, seemingly, all of that is a function of God's providence, meaning everything that happens in life is coming through His hand, His sovereignty, His rule in some way. And so th- this question just reminds us, and, and when we think about grief and lament and sorrow, w- one of the things we have to wrestle with is what? Where is God? Where is He? And sometimes when hard things happen, we, we can struggle to believe that God is in the hardship. And that, uh, maybe God doesn't care. Maybe He's off 
tending to other more important matters. You know, how we think about God is crucial in the moment of grief and lament. And we've seen that in Jeremiah's life, haven't we? Early on in the chapter where he lost his bearing on God and he starts imagining God in, in these horrible, perverse ways. And then he like he catches himself and then he reminds himself of who God is and that puts him back on the right track. But uh, but this question j- just just puts it to us, right? Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? It reminds us that God is sovereign over people, right? Because these Babylonians have been threatening, threatening and uh, what they had threatened came to pass. And it's good to remember that God is sovereign even over that. And, and just, I, I know you struggle with this like I do. Um, many times we are grief-stricken and sad and, and struggling because of what people do, right? It might be something uh, someone did to you. It might be some, th- something that someone did to someone you love and care about. It might be something that someone does that has an effect on your life in some way. And it's very easy when, when we experience people issues to be discouraged and frustrated and to wonder you know, what's going on? And, and, and the point of this is to remember that God is sovereign even over the works of people. Uh, where we, a place that we want to run in our day of grief is to remember that God is in control of every person on the planet. And so we can trust Him and rest in Him even when people do things that are wrong or hurtful or uh, horrible. Okay, and then the second question we looked at, isn't it true that both good and hard times come from God? Verse 38, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Remember that little phrase, good and ill, literally good and evil. Uh, It can be used in two different senses. It can be used in in a moral sense, things that are good and evil in in terms of right and wrong, good and bad, moral, ethical or it can be used in a way that just talks about like good times and hard times. And that's how it's being used here. The, the, that, that, that phrase is just saying everything that happens in life. It's a Hebraic way of saying everything that's going to happen in life, good and bad, pleasant and catastrophic. And again, you know, can you think of any, if you're an Israelite, can you think of anything more horrible that a foreign Gentile nation comes in and destroys everything you care about, kills people you love, and takes your young people off to Babylon to serve a foreign nation? You're never going to see them again. That's a pretty bad day. And in the midst of that, that's why this question is so important. Uh, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and calamity go forth? Uh, his point is what? Um, well, some reminders about the, the moral side of this. But, but the, the, in your notes there, God is sovereign over circumstances, right? That's the point, that there's no circumstance that God is not ruling over, reigning over, sovereign over and um, good and hard times. I love Job's question, and, and Job actually loses sight of this uh, later down the road, but at least in chapter 2, he, he's hanging on to a right perspective, and he says to his wife in the midst of her grief, in the midst of his grief, uh, should we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Um, that's a hard statement, isn't it? And, and, I, and we talked about this last time. I think we're prone as Christians when, you know, maybe we're praying for something or, or something great happens. And what do we say? God is so good. But we struggle to say that when bad things happen. 
We, we struggle to say that when our prayers aren't answered the way we want or when things don't go our way. And, and yet the reality of God's goodness is fixed whether we get our plan or not, whether what we want happens or whether we don't want what we don't want to happen comes to pass, right? And that's, that's what this question is getting at. God is sovereign over circumstances and, and we can trust him because the same wisdom, the same goodness, the same grace, the same heavenly father that sometimes dispenses what we deem as good in our life is the same heavenly father that brings hard things. And, uh, you know, I, I'm wearing out the analogy, but, but it's, it's the only thing I got. You know, when you've got a two-year-old, and you get them a lollipop or a Brahms ice cream cone or something with sugar in it that's bad for them, they're going to say, Mommy's so good, Daddy's so good, right? It's just they're getting what they want. When you're administering a medicine that is bitter, when you are administering the rod in correction, when you have to take them to the doctor to reset a broken bone and your two-year-old, your three-year-old is screaming, why don't you love me? I don't understand. This hurts. As parents, we understand that, that, that the same heart that you and I have as parents of love and good for our child is the same heart that gets the lollipop and the same heart that takes them to the ER to reset the bone so that they'll heal, right? It's the same fatherly parental heart. But the child understands one thing as an obvious expression of good. They do not understand the pain as an expression of good, right? And, and, and that's, that's what we have to remember, that when, when God brings pain and suffering, it's just as much an expression of his fatherly goodness and care than when we have a day at the beach and, and life is great by our estimation. That's what this question is getting at. We, we can trust him that he's over sovereignty, the good and the bad, the difficult and the fun. And we need to remember that in grief that uh, we can trust our heavenly father. Here's the third question. This is where we left off last time. Why should I complain when I suffer for my sin? Why should I complain when I suffer for my sin? Verse 39. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Uh, That's pretty straightforward, right? Now, now we can take that in, in two levels, right? In the immediate context, and this is what Jeremiah has in mind, what he's saying is, when when we're reaping what we've sown... Why are we complaining? The Israelites for decades have rejected their God. Try that again. I spoke a lot this weekend. My mouth isn't working so well. When they are rejecting his commands, when they are rejecting his ways, rejecting his care. And then God says, okay, here's some corrective consequences. And you complain. It's like, Jeremiah says, why do we do that? Why are we complaining when God is doing merely what he said he's going to do? He's been patient and now he's doing it when we're reaping what we've sown, right? 
When we experience the negative consequences of my own sin. Remember Peter talks about this in 1 Peter? He says, you know, when, when you're suffering, there's a, a godly way to respond. But he says, you know what? It's not impressive to God if you do what's wrong and endure the suffering well. <laughs> you're, you know, you're just, you're reaping what you've sown, right? What he says is when you have a godly response in unjust suffering, that's what honors the Lord. Uh, so when I'm reaping what I've sown and I experience negative consequences, why should I complain? But there's another level here, and, and Jeremiah doesn't have this in view as much, but, but other places in the Bible do. When I'm experiencing suffering for any reason, why should I complain? So, so maybe it's not I'm suffering because of my own dumb choice. Maybe it's just I'm just suffering because I'm suffering. The world is broken. Someone else did something to me. Um, right? And, and the Bible says if I will remember what I actually deserve because of my sin and the grace and mercy that God has shown me in Christ, we have nothing to really complain about, do we? Because God has been so benevolent and so kind and so merciful in all of that. But, but, but it brings up this wonderful, this wonderful topic, complaining. Because Jeremiah says here, why should we complain? We shouldn't be complaining. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait a minute. I've read Psalms. We read one of them this morning in Psalm 42, where the psalmist says, seemingly as an expression of faith, I'm complaining to God. So which is it, Pastor Keith? Is it wrong to complain or is it right to complain? I'm so glad you asked that question. Let's talk about complainology. Okay? Um, what, is this, what is this complaining thing? And uh, this is actually a little more complicated than you realize. I was talking to David Gibson a little bit, uh, even about how we use the word bitterness. Bitterness is used in two major senses in the Bible. So uh, we'll see what we can come up with here. But let's talk about some, some complainology, okay? There are in the Bible two types of complaining. And uh, the first type of complaining is the one that you and I are most familiar with. It's called sinful complaining. This is what we do most of the time when we are complaining. You say, what is sinful complaining like? Well, turn with me in your Bible back to Exodus. We're, we're going to thumb our way through uh, some passages in Exodus here. Let me take you back in our uh, theological time machine to the time of uh, the Israelites in captivity in Egypt, right? They've been there for 400 years. Uh, God intervenes. He calls Moses to, uh, to be his representative to let the people go. And he goes to the Pharaoh, the ten plagues. Uh, they leave. They come to the Red Sea. There's the Red Sea crossing. Pharaoh's ar- army dead and destroyed. And we're like, yeah, this is awesome. And then they get into the wilderness on their way to Sinai, right? They, they've been wanting this, praying for this. Uh, pleading to God for this, they're on their way. And something horrible happens. Exodus chapter 15. This is literally right after they're singing the song about God's intervention with the destruction of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Literally the next paragraph, chapter 15, verse 24. Actually, let's look at 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. Verse 23, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. That's what Marah means. Therefore, it was named Marah. See? Verse 24. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? 
Don't we do that? Don't we do that? Last week, God answered our prayers in a wonderfully gracious way. Right? And then we start a new week and we have a challenge. Oh, what's going to happen? I don't know if we're going to make it. Don't we do that? We are so quick to forget the provision of God. I mean, there are dead bodies three days back in the Red Sea from what God just did. Three days ago. And they're like, oh no, we're not going to find some water. What are we? Right? And we do the same thing. I mean, before we whip up on the Israelites, we do the exact same thing. We are so forgetful. We, we, we forget God's provision and kindness and grace. And just as a footnote, I think that's a, a good reason. I don't know if you're into keeping a prayer journal or anything like that, but I, I really think there is, there is spiritual healthiness in documenting God's provision personally in your life. Because then we're like, ah, oh, the sky is falling. Wait a minute. Last week I wrote that, oh yeah, you know, so document God's provision and kindness and grace. And then when you're struggling, go back and remind yourself of God's provision. That's actually what God does in the Bible. Remember, don't you remember this? Don't you remember this? Jeremiah did that, right? This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Remembering is what rescues us in the midst of complaining oftentimes. Well, they're not there, right? They, they've forgotten. Uh, they're, they're grumbling. They're complaining. God provides for them, right? Flip the page. Look at chapter 16, verse 2. Then they sent out from Elim, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Don't read into that. It's just a name. Which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month of their departure. Verse 2. And the whole congregation, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel did what? They grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And then, listen to this. They don't just grumble. They say this. They say to them, Would that we have died by the Lord's hand in Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. And, and Do you know that we are prone to reinterpret history in light of our own current desires? Right? Do you do that? That argument you have with your spouse where you were in the wrong and you're like, no, it was all her fault. Right? That's what we do. And that's what's going on here. They're complaining. They're grumbling. Flip the page down. Look down to verse 7. Verse 7. Um, the Lord hears your grumbling against the Lord, right? That you grumble against us. So Moses provides, uh, remember the quail, and then the manna, and, and all those provisions. Uh, flip over to chapter 17. Verse 3. Are you noticing a theme? Chapter 17, verse 2, the people quarreled with Moses, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now? This is a, a step further. Have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children? It's like, whoa, 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 wait, wait. 400 years you were enslaved in Egypt. God brought you out by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and the ten plagues and the Red Sea. And they're a few days into the wilderness and they're like, Moses, we, we figured out what you're up to. This has all been a plot. This has all been uh, a conspiracy. Yeah, that's right. It's a conspiracy. You brought us out here just to kill us and our children in the wilderness. You're going, what are you talking about? Do you guys recognize that when we are in a grumbling frame of mind, we are not in a good position to determine reality? Is that true for you? 
So you see the theme, and this goes on and on into Numbers. Uh, if we flip the page there, that over to Numbers. Do, 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 do. This continues on. This is kind of the, the theme. Numbers chapter 14, verse 2. So this continues the, uh, the the wilderness journey. Chapter 14, verse 2, All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in Egypt. There it is again. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and little ones will become plunder. So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. <laughs> now we're going to go back to Egypt. We're going to get rid of Moses. And, and it just goes on and on and on. 29, 36, 16, 41. And... and on and on and on. And it's interesting, there, there's a conversation there where Moses goes to God, he's like, I'm done. I'm done. I, I put up with this. And you remember what, what God tells him? He says, Moses, don't, don't, don't forget, their grumbling and complaining is not really against you. It's against me. Right? And that, that's a really indicting but important footnote in all this. While our complaining might have a vertical target, our complaining is always against God in some way, isn't it? Because what we're saying in complaining is, I don't trust you, I don't believe your word, and I don't like the way you're running the universe right now. It's an attack on his character, it's an attack on his goodness, it's an attack on his sovereignty. And, uh, and that's, that's why it's sinful complaining because it is accusing or pushing back or attacking God in some way. Uh, sinful complaining often manifests itself in grumbling, murmuring, and discontentment. It's interesting. We won't go over to Job right now. Job grumbles a lot. He complains a lot. And at the very end of the deal, when uh, Elihu or Elihu shows up, the, the, the young friend of the four friends, the three friends and then the one, and, and, and he's got this really insightful statement. He says to Job, Why are you complaining because God doesn't tell you everything he's going to do? I thought, Isn't that true? Isn't a lot of our complaining because we are making demands of God in some way and he's not living up to our expectations? And so this young theologian, Elihu, back in Job chapter 33, puts his finger on it, right? Job is complaining to God. He's accusing God. He's contending to God because he's demanding that God give him something. And when God doesn't follow through, he gets upset. Thirdly, sinful complaining sometimes accuses God of wrongdoing and pushes back against his sovereignty. We saw that, right? In chapter 16, verse 3. You're not doing what's right. You brought us in the wilderness, but you're wrong. We're going back to Egypt. It's, it's God, you got it wrong. And then speaking of Job, do you remember what God says when God finally shows up in Job? And for two and a half chapters, brings the boom down on Job in terms of calling him out. He comes back in chapter 40, verse 2. God, God gets down to the conclusion. And, and this is an underlining, highlighting, starring, circling verse in your Bible if you do that, okay? Job 40, verse 2. God says to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who accuses God answer it. See, that's the bottom line. 
What we're doing in complaining is we're accusing God. We're contending with God. We're ascribing to God wrongdoing. And just a reminder, I think we know this. That's wrong to do that. It is sinful complaining. It is wrong to complain like this because why? Because we're attacking the character of God. We're expressing discontent with the sovereignty of God. We're calling into question the promises of God. You guess complaining is a very theological exercise. It really is. And what might seem like normal human behavior because I had an accident or this spilled or this didn't work out is actually theologically significant because our complaining is expressing in that moment what we believe about God. Uh, James tells us in James chapter 5 that we shouldn't grumble. We shouldn't complain. Chapter 5, verse 9, you can listen or you're welcome to flip over there real quick. Uh, James, as he's wrapping up his letter uh, to the 12 tribes dispersed, right? The scattered Jewish believers uh, in that early uh, mid-40s of that first century early church. Chapter 5, verse 9 He says this, and this is after persecution, tribulation, hardship, difficulty, right? The church is being persecuted. And James says, I want you to remember something. Um, Don't complain. Chapter 5, verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. And it's interesting, and then he holds up an example of Job's endurance, which is is really interesting. We'll talk about that another time, because in one regard, Job was a great example of endurance. In another way, he was not necessarily the model for not sinfully complaining. Um, But don't complain, right? It's interesting, in Jude chapter 1, verse 16, you don't need to turn there. Jude talks about ungodliness, ungodliness, ungodliness. Let's talk about ungodliness. What's the first thing on the list as he's ramping up to tell us about ungodliness? What is it? Grumblers, murmurers. Um, so this is grumbling, complaining, contending, murmuring, while it is common as the sky is blue. Um, it is spiritually evil and theologically significant about what we're saying about God. Now, in contrast to that, let's talk about godly complaining. Godly complaining. Uh, godly complaining in the Bible, uh, the, the, the Hebrew word used to talk about this means emotional talk about painful things. That's what it is. It's emotional talk about painful things. And we see that modeled in some psalms here. So let's look at some of these psalms together. I would like you to turn there just to get an idea of the context of how this is used and why this is used um, godly complaining. As you're turning to Psalm 55, let me just give you a footnote here. Um, my, my sort of straw poll, and uh, even looking at, at modern dictionaries and whatnot, most of the time when you and I use the word complain, we are not using it in the sense that we're about to see. When you and I use the word complain, we're usually talking about the sinful variety. Uh, in older times, in, in past generations, the word complain in English had two really distinct nuances. 
One is the obvious, the sinful one, the negative, I'm venting, I'm unhappy. But, but the other form of what complaining used to mean in English just meant this, it, it, talking about painful things, expressing painful things. We, we, we just kind of, we've kind of lost the meaning of that word today as language changes over time. So what, what's happened is, and th- I think this is why a lot of the church is confused today, we still retain the word complain in our English Bibles in both senses. Sometimes complain in our Bibles means sinful venting and contending, and sometimes it means you know, potentially good or godly expressions of grief. But what's happened is when we see that word complain, for example, as we're going to see here in Psalm 55, I think a modern audience like us reads into that, oh, God wants me to vent my anger to Him. God wants me to accuse Him. It's okay to do that. In fact, it might even be healthy to do that. But that's a misunderstanding of how the word's actually being used. And I'll show you that you can see that it's obvious in the context. Psalm 55, verse 1, Give ear to my prayer, O God, Do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and surely distracted. And when he uses the word complaint there, he's not contending with God. He's not accusing God. He's not questioning the promises of God. What he's doing is he's saying, I'm pouring out my heart of grief, my heart of struggle to you. And then he goes on to describe that. You say, how do we know that that's true? Well, because some of the parallel language used here. Look in verse 4. My heart is in anguish within me. See, that, that's, that's a, a parallel idea to I'm complaining. Verse 5, fear and trembling have come upon me. Again, that, that's an expression of what he means when he says, uh, I'm, I'm complaining, right? And, and on and on there. So we see that this is emotional talk to God about painful things. Uh, We look down at verse 17. He says, Evening and morning and noon, I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. You see, it's not, God, you're wrong. God, I'm accusing you. Now, Now, sometimes the psalmists do that. But right here, he's saying, I shall call upon God. The Lord will save me. I'm going to call upon him morning and evening and night. I'm going to express my grief to God. That's what complaint and murmur means. And he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul. So I I don't think that what the psalmist is doing here is something sinful and negative. I think what he's doing here is something good and healthy. He's expressing his grief and sorrow to God. But, But notice, you say, how do we know that? Because alongside of the expressions of grief, we get affirmation of the psalmist's trust in God. We get the fact that he's turning to God, looking for help. And, and that's some of the nuancing that we need to give to understand what's the difference between simple complaining, godly complaining. Uh, in that same verse, if you look back at verse 22, in the same psalm, he says, um, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. See, that, that's what he's doing. He's modeling for us what it looks like to cast our burdens on the Lord. Pouring out our hearts. Psalm 62, 8 uh, says something very similar. 62, 8 says this. Uh, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. See, see look, when we're pouring out our heart to God as a function of our trust, And because we're looking to God as a refuge, that pouring out of our soul to God is a good and godly thing. It's not a sinful or evil thing. But but you see the difference, right? One is 
complaining, God, you didn't get it right, accusing, questioning his character, questioning his promises. Another is a pouring out of our struggles to God in faith, in trust, going to God as our refuge and confident that he will hear us and respond. So there's ungodly complaining and there is godly complaining. So you say, what's the difference? Uh, I just try to pull some of these things together and, and some of these we won't have time to look at, but uh, just to make this really clear, how do you know if your complaining is godly or ungodly? Ask yourself this question. Number one, is there faith and trust in my complaining? Is there faith and trust in my complaining? Sinful complaining is a failure of trust. We saw that back in Exodus and Numbers, didn't we? God says, you know, I'm going to do this to test you, and they failed the test because they grumbled and complained. If if trust and faith are present in your pouring out of your grief to God, that's a godly grief. That's a good sign that it's a godly grief. Number two, what's the difference? If your complaining is including things like accusation, contention, or making demands of God, that's probably not a godly grief. That's the sinful type of grief. Number three, if your expressions of complaining Look to God as refuge. We read this in Psalm 142 this morning, right? If I'm, I'm going to God and I'm pouring out my heart to God because I know He is a place of refuge and protection. Well, that's probably a godly expression of grief, a godly expression of complaining, if we want to call it that. Philippians reminds us, Paul reminds us to look at the New Testament. If there is contentment, in our expressions of grief, it's probably godly grief. Paul says in Philippians 4.11, I've found in every circumstance to be content. So, so when there is a heart of submission to God and finding contentment in God, even as I'm pouring out my soul to God, that's a good sign. You say, wait a minute. Did you just say, I'm pouring out my soul in grief to God, but I'm content? Yeah. And that may be a category that you have to think about. Because one of the things we see in godly people in the Bible, one of the things we see in godly people in church history, is that they can cry out to God for help because there's something in their life that's painful or a struggle, but they can do so in a trusting, contented frame that says, I will submit to your goodness even though this is hard. You get that? And again, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing together two categories that maybe don't fit in your mind. We need to get this. We can be content and have a heart of submission to God's sovereign difficulty in our life and still pour out our grief to God and say, I'm struggling, it's hard. Those are not mutually exclusive. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a good sign uh, of spiritual health. Along with that, there is engagement of soul. We see this in Psalm 42, where the psalmist says, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we have to take ourselves in hand. So you know that your expressions of grief and, and complaining, godly complaining to God, are on the right track when you are conversing with yourself, when, when you're taking yourself in hand, when you're engaging your soul. Ungodly complaining is a soul that you've taken your hands off the steering wheel from, right? You're, you're just, you're, you're, your soul is driving recklessly. 
whereas a soul in a better frame is being navigated. It's being shepherded. Uh, when you're speaking God's truth to yourself. We saw that back in Lamentations, right? Uh, Jeremiah starts speaking to himself, right? God's faithful. His loving kindnesses don't fail. And that's what I mean. So when you see engagement of your own soul as you're pouring out to God your grief, that's probably a good thing. And then um, this last one, when there is movement toward quietness and peace, when there is movement toward quietness and peace, we know that we're probably moving in a good direction with our expressions of grief. Paul, you guys know Philippians 4, right? Um, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. And again, let me, let me, let me blow up you know, these categories in your brain for a minute. You can have the peace of God in your heart and cry out to Him for help at the same time. You can have a quiet soul and still say, Lord, I'm struggling, I'm hurting, this is hard. And I think that, you know, don't, don't think that the peace of God means I'm not struggling. Don't think that the peace of God means everything's great. The peace of God is that deep quietness of heart that, that is anchored in the good character and promises of God and you're resting there even though you might be weeping even though you might miss that loved one, even though you might say, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I trust you. You see? So when that sort of engagement is happening, where there's a movement toward quietness and peace, I think that's a good sign that our, our expressions of grief are probably a godly thing. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, so with that in mind then, what do we do when it's not godly grief? What do we do when it's not godly complaining? when it is accusatory. We'll go back to Lamentations and let's land the plane here, okay? Go back to Lamentations to that last question. What's the last question? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Right? That's what we're saying. So what do you do? Look at the next verse. Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. Can I, can I just show you an unusual response to grief? But it is a good and needed and godly response. You ready? Repentance. Sometimes the right thing to do in our grief is repentance. In fact, I'm going to show you next time, the vast majority of time that the Bible commands us to lament or talks about lament it's not because some horrible thing just happened in my life it's because I ought to be grieving and lamenting my sin and that's what Jeremiah is getting at you're grieving you're complaining but it's because you're in sin and you say what's the re- what how do you help people with that do you encourage them you tell them it's going to be okay well, that, well some of that might be appropriate but what they need to hear is what I love you. This is an occasion for repentance. This is an occasion for turning away from sin. Notice what he says there. What's repentance involved? You know this. Examine your ways. Verse 40. Let us examine and probe our ways. Let's see. How do we get off course? How do we go from trusting God to accusing Him, to worshiping Him, to worshiping idols? Where did we get off course? Examine yourself. And then what do you do? You turn. 
You return, right? That, that's the, that's the biblical word for repentance. You turn around. You make a, a 180 degree turn. Let us examine our ways and let us return to the Lord. That, yeah, that word return there, you could accurately translate that repent, right? You're turning, you're returning back to God. You come back to Him in confession, in faith, in seeking forgiveness. Verse 41, we lift up our hearts and lift up our hands toward heaven. You say, what does that mean? It means in repentance, you're dealing with your behavior. That's what hands means. And you're lifting up your heart. You're dealing with your soul. In repentance, you're dealing with your heart and your behavior. Don't don't just focus on, I did the bad thing. I need to change my behavior. Repentance involves the heart as well. That's what he means when he says, lift up your heart and your hands. Deal with your heart. Deal with your behavior. And what? Acknowledge your transgression and rebellion and your need for forgiveness. Verse 42, we have transgressed and rebelled. And you have not pardoned. Why hasn't he pardoned? Because they haven't repented yet. And they need to. So it could be, guys, that what you and I need most in our day of grief is not encouragement, but repentance. We have to examine to know the difference. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for these reminders of um, things that are near and dear to our hearts. Father, we're, we're prone to a ungodly complaining. Would you remind us of your promises and your character and your ways? And when, we, when needed, Father, I pray that we would be quick to repent, and to come back to you, even as Job did, um, that, that we would affirm our trust in you and our wrongness to accuse you of wrongdoing. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy that you do pardon and forgive when we come in repentance, that you are patient and long-suffering with Job, with David, with the psalmist, and with us. And we thank you for your mercy. Father, I pray too that we would help each other, that we could come alongside one another, and that we would join in godly expressions of grief. And we would also help all brothers and sisters when that, that godly expression of grief morphs into sinful complaining. And that we would uh, see that as an occasion for repentance. Uh, Lord, we, we're so grateful that you love us, that you care for us, that you call us to pour, our out, pour out our heart to you. And we know that you will hear and help. Thank you that you're a kind Father and we can trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.